perfection. My Moses action figure. <laughs> Comes with removable stone tablets and shepherd's staff. To the one noble thing. The rod of God. The powers of the staff brought upon Egypt a rash of ten devastating plagues. <laughs> Part of the Red Sea, aka the Sea of Reeds, allowing safe passage for God's people. Produced water from a stone to save the Hebrews from dying in the desert. Uh, may God bless you and hold you in your heart, people. <laughs> Welcome. Is that a saying? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I just feel like that's the fastest way. If somebody were channel fl- flipping through the radio, this would be the fastest way to make them keep flipping. Wow, KCSB has really fallen off. Well, if you've if you've continued to listen, then welcome to Last Refuge of the Incompetent. I am your shepherd for for tonight's one of three shepherds. No, I don't know. I'm not gonna, whatever. I am I am self identifying as a shepherd, and my name is Gall. My name is Moses. It's my real name. It's not a name I chose for this episode. <laughs> my name is Ted. You guessed it. This sci-fi show is going to talk about religion. Priests in space. <laughs> Priests in space. Oh, but then Mel Brooks did the Jews in space at the end of Spaceballs, right? That counts. That's on theme. Sorry, not the end of Spaceballs. It was the end of the history of the world. How embarrassing. <laughs> I'll, I'll take oh, your man. resignation on my desk. <laughs> Spaceballs, fun fact, if we're talking about religion in Hebrew school, when they didn't have anything to teach us, they would put on Spaceballs. <laughs> 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 it was often played in Hebrew school. Here's your cultural patrimony. <laughs> Did the history of the world have too many dirty jokes? Probably. Yeah. I don't remember it very well at all. I think History of the World might be... Isn't uh, But I'm a King in that one? <laughs> you guys didn't grow up watching every Mel Brooks movie <laughs> multiple times? <laughs> I'm not sure if I ever have seen... Your, we didn't even your... think to put it on the list for this week. <laughs> Instead, this week we read a very serious book with almost no laughs. Uh, a, can- a Canticle for Leibowitz. Uh, I guess it had laughs. a... There are there's some comedy funny. of errors. Uh, but poor Brother Francis. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we, we get to laugh at him at first, but... It's just sad. I but that was great. I really enjoyed that book. And yeah, that's a I'm one looking of, forward to talking about it. One of my favorite books. I enjoyed it, and I didn't realize that it came out in um, came out yeah, later. Fifty nine. Yeah, I thought it came out later than that. Yeah, same. It oh, feels very contemporary. Uh, anyway. And then I also pitched Pie, the Darren Aronofsky movie Pie. I watched that guy. I pitched the <laughs> Abominable Doctor Fibes. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know if that film actually has much to say about religion. <laughs> we watched it. Yeah. I I'm mean, sorry to a... say I didn't get to that one. That's okay, all right. Okay, we didn't watch it. <laughs> it's a cult, a cult classic. People, I've what I've read now that I've watched it. I've never heard of it before, but people are really into it. And then I also read The Sparrow because Ted suggested it, and I had already read Canticle for Leibovitz. As far as music, I found that... There's a progressive symphonic rock band named Metaphor <laughs> that's produced a concept album rock opera based on the Sparrow, which just so you guys listeners are aware, the Sparrow is about a Jesuit in space. <laughs> and that I, that came out in 2007. Pi is Darren Aronofsky's first feature film directorial debut, and it also launched the film scoring career of Clint Mansell from Pop Will Eat Itself who did all of his other movies except for Mother, I think. Because the 
Abominable Dr. Phoebus is about a organ player. There's like some organ playing music, and then there's also some 1920s era source music. But that's all I could find. His <laughs> clockwork band is probably the best part of that film. It's really good. Everybody, you're listening to the podcast version of Last Refuge of the Incompetent. That means all the music that we talk about and then subsequently play on the radio is edited out so that we can legally produce this show and put it up on different platforms for you to enjoy. Hopefully, hopefully you're enjoying this. Who knows? Doesn't matter. Anyway, if you would like to listen to the radio edit, you're in luck because we put all those shows up on Mixcloud, mixcloud.com. Just search Last Refuge of the Incompetent or go to our website, lastrefugepod.com, lastrefugepod.com. You can then have access to all the links that we talk about on the show, as well as the full playlists, as well as a link to the Mixcloud for that episode. And you can check out all the cool art for the show. Because depending on what platform you're listening to, there may or may not be all that cool art displayed. Anyway, I've been talking for too long, so enjoy the rest of the show. Though they hold me aloft, further from truth and farther from home, forlorn. Let's canicle it up. Let's canicle and Leibovitz it up. Leibovitz it? It's my mother's maiden name. I don't get it. So it's a book set, it starts out 600 years after a nuclear apocalypse. And the whole book is just fraught with Cold War fears of nuclear war. That's the theme. Can humanity escape this cycle of just destroying itself? No. But what's it like (laughs) during that cycle? The whole perspective of the book is told... There are several time leaps. Uh, So the first third is 600 years in the future, and the second third is 400 after that, and the second is like another five or 700 after that. The center of each story is uh, this order of monks called the Brothers of Leibowitz, and eventually becomes a saint, but their whole deal is they're there to preserve knowledge uh, that was lost. And after the nuclear apocalypse in this book, pretty much all of humanity said... Uh, we're going to murder everyone who was even remotely responsible or maybe who even w- is smart enough to have possibly been responsible. So any scientist or probably anyone who wears glasses, that kind of thing. <laughs> a lot of a lot of people are purged uh, and books burned and so on. And so there's an order of monks that make it their, their life's duty to preserve the knowledge, kind of like the characters in Fahrenheit 451. This is explicitly a Catholic order of monks. And there's a lot of Latin in this book. Yeah, for I mean, for a book that's so, like, it, it's extremely, like, a religious book, it's not a preachy book. Like, no. he, the, the religion is part of all these people's characters and it's part of this world, but it's not directed at you. It's not preaching to you, the reader. It's just saying, my God, how awful, how do you resolve all the contradictions of being alive, religion or not? I felt it did get preachy in the third story. In the end? Um, I was with- able to just figure, I was, uh, yeah, definitely the tone got preachier, but I still felt like, well, that's just that guy. I don't <laughs> have to listen to that guy. <laughs> that's that character. <laughs> right. Maybe, though, I mean, that character feels like maybe more of a, a stand-in for Miller. I yeah. I think I think Canticle for Leibovitz is two good novellas and a third not very good one. Well, it is, uh, it is 
of a fix-up book. So he wrote three short. So he this is his only full-length novel that he ever published when he was alive. And then they were it was um three short stories that he wrote that he put together mm. and kind of messed around with. He wrote a lot about yeah. religion because so Walter M. Miller Jr. was a Army Corps radio man and tail gunner during World War II and he flew through Italy and took part in the bombing of Benedictine Abbey at Monte Cassino, which proved to be a pretty important moment in his life. And after the war he converted to Catholicism and a lot of his writing was kind of reflective and as a result of that experience in World War II. A lot of what's interesting about the book is that it's a Catholic order that's preserving this pre-apocalypse knowledge, uh, but the figure that's eventually canonized that uh, it's named after and is its sort of patron is this obviously Jewish engineer who yeah. converts after the apocalypse. After his yeah. wife dies, right? Yeah. And yeah, his daughter. wife dies in the in the fallout shelter. You know, you never meet the character directly. He's just this figure in the past that they learn a few fragmented bits of information about. But there's a ambiguity, like, well, was this a like a sincere faith conversion, or was he just sort of hoping to use the structure of the church to preserve the secular knowledge? And that's sort of a theme mm-hmm. throughout the rest of the book, whether like... And, the, uh, and part of the reason they want to canonize him is that he was burned at the stake for for mm-hmm. uh, book-legging, bootlegging mm-hmm. books. <laughs> the Yeah, the masses found him out and, and tore him apart for it. And it becomes this continuing theme, whether the church is sort of... Whether the church and this order in particular is sort of being used by secular knowledge without its kind of full... Without fully realizing it, whether this is a good idea or a bad idea, whether right. it's making the world a better place or just setting up the eventual return of nuclear apocalypse. But yeah, I think then in the third bit, when the world suddenly sort of returns to exactly how it was when the first nuclear apocalypse happened it's sort of it's kind of flat and uninteresting i think the society that gets created it's just too yes this is exactly the same as it was it's just kind of broad unsubtle nothing new under the sun ism Mm. and yeah then it just gets very moralism moralistic um (laughs) in that it it mainly becomes about this one abbot's heroic moral stance against euthanizing victims of nuclear weapons and he's just yeah, clearly wrong he, yeah. his position is incorrect and it's because of his theology um so i didn't care for that third but the first <laughs> two thirds yes <laughs> much better yeah i totally agree with ted that the i like the first two thirds more but somehow i was able to just write that off as a character bit yeah same, even if I the character so. is the author bit yeah, I mean, I, I was less certain about it until I looked him up and found that he was a convert to Catholicism. And I don't know, adult converts to Catholicism. <laughs> you gotta keep Thanks for up. listening. Yeah, you adult <laughs> converts to Catholicism. <laughs> gotta keep your eye We on value it. your listenership. Only bread and read it before I knew anything about him and I only started reading up about him you know when I was working on this outline and I just kind of assumed that he wasn't religious that he was the opposite like you know most Catholics grow up Catholic and then lapse away from it and so I think I 
uh, was very surprised. I mean, it, it changes the reading of the novel, I can imagine. If you're going at it thinking this person is really into that blood of Christ <laughs> stuff. <laughs> but, uh, How but much yeah, of this am I allowed to keep in the radio? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's... Uh, uh, what? All of it. Uh, you can say blood of Christ on the radio. <laughs> Zones! <I know>. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it, I mean, the again, the book, for the most part, doesn't come across as the work of like uh, someone who's very uh, orthodox and closed-minded. Um, no, right. There's definitely the... The discussion in the second half of the book between the abbot in that time period and this sort of brilliant coming up in the world secular scholar, it's clear that sort of the author can see both sides. Mm-hmm. And it's not like either one is represented to be just like clearly wrong. Yeah, yeah, that was a great part in the book. So that is like at the inflection point of people are the society is finally uh starting to embrace knowledge or at least parts of society are instead of shunning it as evil and so there's you know start to be a little a, bit, a few academics and this one scientist guy goes to the abbot and says oh my god you have all these treasures here and the or yeah goes to the abbey and the abbot the guy says yeah we've had him here the whole time and the scientist says, yeah, we've been hiding them. He's like, we haven't been hiding them. People just didn't care. He's like, well, you, you should have made people care. He's like, well, we couldn't make people care. They tried to kill us for caring. <laughs> and that's a nice discussion they have together. And also within the Abbey itself, you know, there are monks that only care about preserving the knowledge for preservation's sake. And then right. there are the monks that actually care about using it. The one who invents the arc lamp again. So it's not, it's not like they're all blindly devout. Only, if, only some of them are. it's a fun theological idea so there's a character that appears in all three of the sections and i mean he claims to have lived for thousands of years and eventually it's heavily implied that he's the biblical lazarus waiting for the messiah to return yeah it's just a fun theological idea that once jesus brings you back to life you're just alive now <laughs> yeah forever yeah, yeah. you're dead walking around yeah, you're not dead so you're just gonna continue to not be dead i think that now you have now you have to wander around this nuclear apocalypse wasteland keeping your butt cool on rocks yeah. His, his read... dialogue with the abbot is some of the, the fun funny material in the book. It's funny. Like, I read this book a few years ago, and I didn't I didn't reread it for this go-around. But the two things that I think stuck with me the most was that character and the setting. I really mm-hmm. like the... Um, it's like in the American Southwest, and it, I think he does a mm-hmm. good job yeah. of, of kind of <clears throat> setting this kind of weird deserty scene. Yeah. I also said... like that... That, that Lazarus is a sci-fi element there, and that the yeah. church like is constantly talking about oh, how many true miracles did Leibowitz perform, uh, and it's all just, you know, everyone's searching for miracles so they can canonize them. Meanwhile, yeah, yeah actually Lazarus was risen from the dead, <laughs> yeah. and they're like, who's that weird old hermit? Yeah. And yeah. none of... None of the abbots who know him believe it for a second. Yeah. yeah. Oh, you mean old Ben? <laughs> old Ben Kenobi? <laughs> but, uh, He's just some dumb, weird, crazy Jew guy who, who writes like that's what they, they. That's the other thing is that he's Jewish. He knows Hebrew. He writes in Hebrew. Yeah. Uh, Lazarus does, and he confuses several monks. Like, what is that weird writing? It's going the wrong way. <laughs> Uh, when he's really the only manifest miracle in the entire world. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, for being for being not that long 
a book. The the first two sections really do do a very good do-do. job. Do do. <laughs> Let him talk. <laughs> uh, I'm wearing a dinosaur costume right now. I'm drinking a beer. <laughs> Uh, you can't drink beer on the radio. Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it does a very good job of creating that setting and giving it like a, I don't know, like a rich, complex feeling, even though it's not, I don't know what it is. It's not described in that much detail, but you still feel very much in that environment. And yeah, you can really feel how it became influential for uh, future Post-apocalyptic fish can. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's very um, Mad Maxy, right? Or yeah. feeling wise, oh, yeah, like, yeah. yeah, like Fallout or stuff yeah. like that. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, can... honestly, if you were to add, if you were to get me to describe this book a week ago before I relooked at this plot summary, I would have been like, I don't know, there's just like a weird three thousand year old man and he's in the desert. <laughs> 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 yeah. Some stuff about Jews and Catholics. <laughs> so- But yeah, the first third is from the point of view of a poor old brother Francis, and yeah. what a poor sweet naive brother Francis, poor sweet dumb idiot brother Francis. <laughs> he, he doesn't know anything. He's constantly being yelled at. Whenever he gets nervous, he faints. Uh, he he toils for fifteen years on an illuminated manuscript of the relic of Leibowitz. That's just an old circuit diagram. But he really like inlays it with gold and draws a bunch of vines around the resistors. And he doesn't know what a resistor is. No one does. Uh, I enjoyed imagining that. That's great. The illuminated circuit diagram. That's beautiful. <laughs> that was one of my favorite parts about the sec- the first section and the um, book in general is how richly it imagines like how difficult it would be to for a post-apocalyptic future to imagine exactly what our present was like um, and right. like what what post-apocalyptic historiography would be like basically mm-hmm. it really gets to how like knowledge is embedded in an like any particular knowledge is embedded in a whole system of knowledge and how it kind of requires that system to be legible or comprehensible yeah that was a big thing in the second and third parts about how you know the monks say well we're preserving the truth right there's an there's this universal truth to the world and we're preserving these relics of it and then someone has to say well yeah that truth can exist or it can be there but it's it can't be it's up to society to treat it as a truth and does that mean it's a real truth if it's if no one acknowledges it not quite like a society cultural relativism thesis but more or less i don't remember if it's francis himself or some other character kind of reflecting on their project as an order, but some character is talking or thinking about how they don't know what any of the stuff, like the circuit diagram, means, but you can mm-hmm. just tell that the way it's structured, like it has meaning. If you just um, preserve this stuff that has a clear structure of meaning, then eventually someone will figure it out and be able to right. sort mm-hmm. of extrapolate the system from it. Which ends up being the case, more or less. Well, I, I always like that kind of stuff. I, the things that archaeologists or paleontologists or anthropologists get wrong, like about the past and the 
the constant misinterpreting, the, being so sure about like these bones together mean X, Y, and Z. Yeah. And then, you know, mm-hmm. 10 years mm-hmm. later being like, we were wrong, yeah. you know? And <laughs> Oh crap. All of these animals had feathers this entire <laughs> right. time. Exactly. I think there's, I, I think that's like such an interesting idea. And it, it brings me to, to the sparrow a little bit. It's essentially like, what if Jesuits plus an anthropologist went to, went made first contact um and she is herself the mary doria russell w- is a was an academic before she wrote any fiction was, i think she, her focus was on neanderthals and bones mm. <laughs> oh there was i didn't want to bring up just <laughs> bonographer <laughs> uh there was a nice uh a good physics joke in the second part where the scientist comes to the order and finds some ancient text and says, only a fragment of this text survived. The end part, and he reads like an excerpt from it, and says, you know, this this whole text ends with therefore, and then says, comes to the conclusions of a clear madman. But it started with the assumptions of a madman. And it, the whole thing is about general relativity. Like, it's talking about space-time <laughs> intervals, <laughs> or, or space-like uh, space-time separations, and time-like space-time separations, which I have studied. <laughs> and... Uh, and yeah, it's it's great to say like yeah, it started with the assumptions of a madman and reached the conclusions of a mad madman. Internally, they're consistent though. So, is something going on there? It's very very brief, so it doesn't really affect the work overall, I guess. But it's one thing that really reminds you that it was written in 1959. And it's probably the single worst thing in the book is that in the third section, which is set, I think, 1200 years after um, the original Apocalypse. It might be like 15. I thought it was in the year 3700. Okay. So, yeah, you never, it's never actually established when the bombs went off, except that we know that there's robot traffic. So it's after oh, yeah. the 50s, but sometime mm-hmm. after the 50s. But probably just the 60s. <laughs> yeah. uh, but there's this character who's only like only mentioned in a sentence who's like some kind of black nanny character who speaks in a very stereotypical like southern black n- nanny way. Right. And this is in a far future where it's established that different dialects developed Wouldn't... different parts of the u.s sure that are barely like inter- so why would that even be something yeah that why would up? that way of speaking survive a nuclear apocalypse and still be it's a, yeah it's you... clearly a, a, a choice by the author to say oh i'm gonna make this future dialect into this present day dialect yeah and yeah. that choice means a lot of good things about <laughs> <me>. <laughs> it's like yeah did he make that decision and if so know. why or is, is it some? Was he just like in? He couldn't like, get past his yeah, like, like 1959 privileged white male brain to to think maybe perhaps that wouldn't <laughs> yeah. be the case for <laughs> black yeah. people in the year 3000. And it's and it's just the most extraneous thing. It's not. It's a detail mm-hmm. that's not related to anything yeah. else yeah. in the book in any important way. You could if you erased it, it would not change the book in any other. Any other way, it's bizarre. Right. Well, <laughs> so, can't it go from the woods? Do you remember the sparrow at all? Um, 
I think I read it in like eighth or ninth grade. It was a I got it. Whoa, as a that's gift. an intense book to read. In eighth, yeah, maybe it was later grade. in high school, but um, definitely that period generally. So I I remember the Jesuits who go to this alien planet being like um, horribly like skinned and flayed by the aliens that they. Oh um, my encounter at the beginning i'm gonna say this like i really liked the book and i read it like wait it was i haven't read a book in a while where it was like i wanted to find out what happens next because it's kind of written almost like a mystery because it's written there's two perspectives there's the perspective of the jesuit who's come back to earth and you're finding out about what happened to him on this planet and then there's the perspective what of what led up to him going to this planet. And so you're just trying to get to the... You're like, what is going on? What happened to him in this planet? The whole time. Mm. And dis, like disclaimer for anybody who is interested in reading it. There is... There's sexual abuse and, and rape. And it's not a... It's not a... It's not an easy read. I wouldn't give Oof. it to your 8th or ninth grader, per my, se. My unless aunt they were, bought it for me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, unless they were like, you know, more... I mean, my mom... I think my mom gave me... What is it called? The Prisoner? It's like a Russian... Prisoner of the Caucasus by Tolstoy? Yes! I think my mom gave that to me one day. I was like bored and I was like, email, I don't know what to read. And she just went up to our library and was like, here. (laughs) There's worse things than boredom. So The Sparrow came out in 1996. It's by this woman named Mary Doria Russell. And there's a sequel to it called Children of God that came out in 1998. The title of The Sparrow comes from Gospel of Matthew. Oh, how do you... 10? 29? 31? How do... What do... New Testament people. What does that mean when you see that? Don't don't ask me. Come on, Gal. My name is Moses. You know I can't answer that. Yeah. But I also know that you're not Jewish. So... Yeah, you you Do also you know? know that I don't read books. I, I believe I think it's chapter and verse. Uh, okay. So Gospel of Matthew chapter ten verse twenty nine to thirty one, uh, so where the expression like chapter and <laughs> the expression chapter and verse like if someone is knowledgeable yes. the Bible they can cite okay. chapter and verse to you. Okay, cool. I only read blasphemous texts, <laughs> so <laughs> sorry. Um. Anyway, relate those are notably as... unparagraphed. <laughs> <laughs> The name comes from the idea that not even a sparrow falls to the earth without God's knowledge thereof. And mm. it's exactly, it's about Jesuits in space. <laughs> anyway, it's got some SETI, SETI? SETI. S-E-T-I? Yeah. SETI program, Arecibo Observatory situation Great going observatory. on. This priest's name is Emilio Sandoz, and he goes to, I'm not going to tell you exactly what happens because i think it's a really cool book and you should go check it out i'm gonna try to tell you as much as i never can remember what happens because i'm very pro spoilers (laughs) and this is a pro spoilers show yeah all right go ahead what do you remember ted i'll do it after you finish oh well so mary dor mary dory uh russell was raised catholic but left the church at 15 and then when she had kids, she was like trying to struggle to figure out how much culture to pass on to her children. And that kind of fueled the prominence of religion in her work. Funnily enough, she, as an adult, converted to Judaism um, when she was trying to bring back religion to her to her life. So just how Ted was like, oh, adults' conversion to Catholics. I'm like, oh, adults' conversions to Judaism? What is going on? <laughs> Any religion. 
um, <laughs> they're all the same. As I said, I don't remember the book that well, but looking back on it, it probably was like an early introduction to anthropological ideas. From my memory, a lot of the book is like this seemingly horrible and very hostile thing that the aliens do to the Jesuits. You eventually learn that, oh no, it has these yeah. very different like cultural meanings to the aliens. Um, and it's not what it appears to the Earth visitors. That same kind of thing happened in that uh, Orson Scott card, the later Ender uh, books. Zeno yeah, where he's side. racked with guilt, so he converts to Catholicism and <laughs> goes to be like a space missionary on a like a Brazilian yeah. colony. Yeah, and so on that Brazilian colony, there are these intelligent pig aliens, and they they disembowel a bunch of people because they thought, oh, yeah, we're taking them apart so we can plant them in the ground, but it just kills the humans. And they're like, oh, whoops. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she's a, that's her thing. She has a PhD in biological anthropology. And I thought this... she was a bonographer. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> she is a bonographer. Wah, wow. <laughs> Fun facts and some thoughts on on this book. So new section, some new facts section. and fun thoughts. <laughs> I found this reviewer, the some reviewer when the book came out in 96. A literary critic named Nancy Pearl was like, she felt the book was mistakenly categorized as science fiction and that it is really a philosophical novel about the nature of good and evil. What happens when a man tries to do the right thing for the right reasons and end up causing incalculable harm? And I was like, does this does this woman understand what science fiction is? Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, why would those two negate each other? Why would a book? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. M- m- much literature, including most of science fiction, is about that. <laughs> yeah. Ex- oh, it's a philosophical but, idea? Yeah, oh, you- it can't be science fiction. Th- th- this book came out in 1996. Ursula K. Le Guin. Uh, name, right. a, name a sci-fi writer that wrote just books about things <laughs> like yeah i mean that's anyway. i mean there's a long critical tradition of you know any genre fiction that's too good can't really be genre fiction but right. oh yeah, yeah. 1996 like is pretty late for that it's seems... <laughs> it's true i was reading this article that came out pretty recently about that was it's like the same thing like this is like such a common refrain of when when a writer writes something that has like some side could, could be construed as sci-fi elements, but the literary world loves it. They're, they're very hesitant to accept the sci-fi. I mean, the yeah. same thing happens in, in film when any movie has like a horror element, but it also has any other elements that people like. They're like, well, we'll forgive them the horror bits. <laughs> right. Because I actually thought about the nature of evil. So it can't actually be a horror movie. <laughs> I think Margaret Atwood only recently has come to accept that The Handmaid's Tale is is speculative fiction or sci-fi. But she originally was very like, no, no, no. I write literature. <laughs> yeah, literature. That's why I kind of like people like. I mean, Joanna now has... I definitely feel it's it, the Handmaid's Tale is too real to talk about as sci-fi right now. <laughs> Prophetic. Too depressing. When does this come out? Does this? Oh, this comes out after the election. Yeah, so I'm sure it'll feel very, <laughs> Great. very relevant. The show listener will disclaimer. Be the <laughs> That is happening on uh, November 7th. Yes, it is, Ted. 
It's the most important thing. Oh, the other thing I wanted to point out that uh, in in March 2006, it was announced that Warner Brothers had purchased the rights to the Sparrow for Brad Pitt's production company, Plan B, and that Pitt himself, mind you, a white man, wanted to play the role of Sandoz, a Puerto Rican Jesuit, and Mary uh, Doria Russell was like, uh, no, thank you, and revoked all <laughs> film rights to her books and Believing Ooh, that Hollywood, nice. yeah, believing Hollywood cannot and will not make a film version of the Sparrow that is faithful to the book, which makes sense. It's a pretty dark book. If you really like adapt it, it would be pretty intense. Do you think she would give it to Lin Manuel, Man of the People? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and um, what's his face, Aaron Sorkin? <laughs> oh my <Hello>. god, <laughs> power couple. <laughs> Brad Pitt made Ad Astra instead. A space dad movie. Also, I found out Priest in Space is like a whole thing. It's like a whole genre, subgenre. James Blish's A Case of Consciousness has a Jesuit priest confronting an alien civilization. Arthur C. Clarke's short story The Star. Stanislaw Lem. Have you read oh, Fiasco? Yeah. About first contact with a SETI mission and has a priest. A Dominican one. The Book of Strange New Things by Michael Faber. Orson Scott Card wrote another entire series called Homecoming. I mean, I read it in high school, and I didn't realize until I was, I don't know, four books in that it was just a space retelling of the Mormon. <laughs> <laughs> the whole Mormon text. <laughs> like, even, even like, the names are the same. No, like, I'm no. just, I just didn't realize. It starts out as, like, Earth society that is, that is being overseen by a super intelligent computer. And then they escape it, or the computer's like the overseer. And they escape it to go colonize another world, and then pretty much just act out the entire Mormon text. So, I don't think I can recommend it, but it's... They, the only difference between that and all the Mormon texts are that it's in space. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you can re- recommend it to our Mormon listeners. Yeah, <laughs> yeah go nuts, Mormon <laughs> listeners. Also, Arthur Clarke wrote another short story called The Nine Billion Names of God. And it's a real short story, but it has a pretty good premise. There's some Tibetan monks who, for thousands of years, have been tasked with just writing down all the permutations of the possible names of God. And then one day they get a computer, and they're like, (laughs) oh, this is going to speed up our work a bunch. (laughs) Finally. And like a visitor to this Tibetan monastery goes and interviews them about it, and they're like, well, why are you doing this? Like... Well, you know, this is just the task of the universe. Once we're done, the universe can finally come undone. And then this computer finishes and all the stars start blinking out. It's <laughs> That uh, is a really good segue into Pi, bringing us to the Jews. Pi came out in 1998 by Darren Aronofsky. It's got some really, some real Tetsuo the Iron Man vibes to it. Black and white. Yeah, it has that high contrast black and white look. Yeah, um. it's got the weird, the set the computer that he builds feels like a weird set that um, the f- male fetishist in Tetsuo is hanging out in. And that's about a mathematician who's obsessed with order and numbers. Like, hard, hard to tell exactly what he's obsessed with. He's got two competing things that are after him. He's got Wall Street. He's sharks. trying to solve the equation of the stock market. Yeah. <laughs> and then he's got a bunch of rabbis, a bunch of Kabbalists, a bunch of Jewish mysticists coming after him for... It's kind of like the the Jewish mysticism mafia. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> there and they are all there. They they think he's got the answer to God's real name. 
which is uh, all about numerology. If you guys don't know about numerology, there's this in Kabbalah, people believe that every letter of the Jewish alphabet is corresponds to a number and that those numbers have meaning and you can find patterns in the, I mean, it's all nonsense, It's very sci-fi. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, and it's very sci-fi. Sci-fi. It's very sci-fi. <laughs> the God has a supposedly his true name, which you can't say is a 216 letter name and that if they figure out how to actually say it, then... I don't know, enlightenment comes or something. Yeah, the ultimate MacGuffin. Shema Mephorash. Mephorash. Man, that really just makes God seem like the most pretentious art kid you've ever met. (laughs) (laughs) I have a 216 letter name. It's unpronounceable. (laughs) (laughs) Or it's like Mr. Mixes Pitlick from the old Superman comics. That's God. Probably was written by a Jewish comic book writer. So that might even be a reference. (laughs) That is true. You know, like... All of, or most of Darren Aronofsky's films, this is, a lot of it is about just a, a crazy, about mental illness, I think, is a good way to look at it. Yeah, definitely. Mathematics has a mental illness, which <laughs> that's pretty cool to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he ends up uh, performing some, how do you say that word? Trepan? Trepanation. At home brain surgery. <laughs> which is successful. He manages to find, like, the math lobe in his brain. <laughs> yeah. And... <laughs> successfully excises it with a screwdriver Um, that's yeah this is another thing that i think watched in high school and hadn't watched since and the uh screwdriver to the head is the main thing i remembered but um (laughs) i quite liked it on second viewing the whole total film cost one hundred and thirty five thousand dollars, basically very very low production cost it was basically crowdfunded so he kind of asked his friends and family to donate money and that's how he got the money to his, for his movie. I watched it also pretty young in high school, and I really liked all the math mysticism parts. My dad really liked the, you know, the Jewish organized crime parts of it. <laughs> <He's Jewish>. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I mean, it's never established. I mean, it's never established that they're, like, engaged in any organized crime. They just really want the number in his head. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, they do feel very mobby. Yeah, towards the end where they like just show up and throw yeah. him in a car and yeah. start threatening him. Um, <laughs> you don't know what you're messing with. <laughs> I do. I, it's a, it has a happy ending. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the moral is just get the math out of your head. It's more trouble than it's worth. Vibes is a dark comedy horror from England, 1971, and uh, it's got the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. Vincent Price in it. But you can watch the full movie on YouTube. I'll link to it on the website. The one thing that, I mean, the only thing that is is close to religion is that the Dr. Phoebus is a famous organist and a theologian, and he murders people using the Ten Plagues of Egypt. <laughs> Yeah, I love that when the detective who's on the case, like, unravels um, who could be doing this, the fact that he has a PhD in theology is what reveals that, oh yeah, it could be him that's doing the ten plagues of Egypt to people, because yeah, that's the only way you could could know about that. <laughs> Studied it's- at the doctoral level. So the, the director of this, after right after making a sequel to this movie where he goes to Egypt looking for immortality, yeah, he directed another movie, which I briefly uh, mentioned during the Zardoz episode, 
called The Final Program, oh, uh, yeah. which is one of the strangest films I've ever seen. And this yeah, is yeah. relatively normal compared to that. But What um, was The Final Program again? <sighs> if anybody knows, I'd like, I'd like them to tell me. Um, I didn't watch that one, did I? No, did I don't I? think you did. It's kind of about this um, like super scientist who gets turned into the ultimate like next stage. In oh, human no, I watched this okay, one. Yeah. Are you kidding me? <laughs> yeah, it's very, it's bizarre, right? This is the movie that, um, uh, what's his face was supposed, Mick Jagger, Mick Jagger was supposed to be cast yeah. in the, in the main role. Anyway, yeah, weird guy. Check out that Zardoz episode for more info on <laughs> final program. I can see yourself wondering wait a minute, didn't you guys say you edited out all the music for the show? Well, then who is this intoxicating voice that I've been listening to? Oh, well, that is none other than Sarah Stanley, a.k.a. Focus Bird. Surprise, surprise, a good friend. <laughs> Who'd have thunk it? And she gave us permission to use all her music, and if you like it, go check her out on Bandcamp. Bandcamp, search Focus Bird. Or, like I said earlier, if that's too hard for you, just go to lastrefugepod.com. You can find links to all our music there. Thanks for listening. Zardoz fits into the religion, sci-fi religion. Yeah. <laughs> I think we were trying to do real religion, because there's lots of made-up religions. Uh, Farscape, oh, right. Bokanonism Bokan- uh, uh, <laughs> and all Kurt Vonnegut stuff. Yeah, I mean, all of what was the parable of the sower. Yeah, religion plays a pretty big role in uh, Deep Space Nine. Oh, yeah, the Bajorans. Mm-hmm. And the religion uh, turns out to just be true, basically. Yeah. Um, their deities are... Extra-dimensional beings who live in a wormhole. Great series. Highly recommend Star Trek Deep Space Nine. But now it's Farscape Corner. What was that gall about? Farscape religions? There's a lot of religion talk in Farscape. A lot of weird mysticism going on. A lot of inexplicable stuff, but they kind of give it... Like, every once in a while, they'll be like... The writers will be like, yeah, we know that this isn't really sci-fi and it's not explained. Get over it. (laughs) (laughs) Farscape also has deity-level wormhole aliens. Oh, yeah, for uh, sure. There's a lot of deity stuff going on in Farscape. Yeah. I'm almost done. And I'm kind of getting a little bit tired of the whole worm st- wormhole shtick, if I'm being perfectly <laughs> yeah, honest they, with you. They, they lean on it pretty hard by the end. <laughs> I hope you guys are doing all well. okay post-election. I hope everybody that's listening to the show is I hope we're doing some, okay. <laughs> some reprieve. Oh, you know. <sighs> <laughs> oh, I was going to say next week we're doing a math episode. Oh, that's next week. Excellent. Yeah, that that follows pretty directly from Darren Aronofsky's Pie. Yeah. Yeah. Math. Read Flatland, everyone. It's from so long ago that it's, you know, you can read it for free on the internet. It's out of copyright. Flatland, a romance of many dimensions. Check out our website, lastrefugepod.com. You can, I'll, I'll link to the abominable Dr. Fibes. I want to say Phoebus. It's more enjoyable. Fibes is weird. Go for it. Live your dream. <laughs> What's our email? Oh, our email is the last refuge of the incompetent at gmail.com. Email <laughs> us. Why not? What do you have to lose? Yeah. Leave us a vo- leave us a voicemail. Call us up 805-253-3091. Leaving a voicemail is something you do regularly, so why not also do it to a radio program? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I was always so surprised when I was programming live and I'd get people 
I get people calling in requesting songs only because I was just that just takes so much guts. I hate calling. I hate calling people. Like cold calling people. <laughs> once, once I got a call when I was doing the yeah doing the show live at KCSB, and some guy called it, and this was a pretty late night one because I, I just started. And the guy called in and said, "Yeah, I'm pretty I'm feeling pretty down. I w- could you just play Pink Floyd's Comfortably Numb because that's how I'm feeling right now." <laughs> and I'm like, it, "I'm not gonna play that song. It's playing on another station probably yeah. already." <laughs> Oh, that reminds me of a, the other the other joke I thought of at the beginning of the top of the show today, which is like I was describing my show once, and maybe this happened, maybe it didn't, but anyway, I was describing my show once, and someone was like, like, oh yeah, what kind of music do you play? And I'm like, oh, uh, you know, I like Guided by Voices and the Jesus and Mary Chain. And I'm like, oh, do you play any secular music? <laughs> <laughs> so that that's the theme for this episode. I had, a, I had a semi-regular regular caller who sent me a cassette tape that I think had, like, Polish choral music or something like that on it. Um, anyway, yeah, thanks for that. I don't remember your name, sorry. I had a few regular callers, and I had one guy called me requesting, like, a Tina Turner live performance on, like, one of those variety shows. And for I just... your folk music show? <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and I just I just YouTube I like went on YouTube and I was like Tina Turner and I found it and he was like amazed and he wrote me a nice handwritten letter. <laughs> wow, that. handwritten. Yeah, I sent it to Casey. I think care of Gall. <laughs> we I think we all had Dave from the Grave calling though. I hope he's oh, doing yeah. all right. I don't know if he ever called my show, but he definitely called while I was subbing for other shows. I had um. A guy that would call me... Oh, no, I had a guy ask me out on a date. (laughs) (laughs) Reader, I I married him. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Once I had... Once I had uh, I I had some friends on the show and we all decided to, like, read a Ray Bradbury story out. It was the one about astronauts falling to space and they're, like, communicating over radio, so it makes a good radio play. Like, they're all, like talking to each other uh these astronauts get blasted out of their spaceship and they're just totally screwed but they can still talk to each other and then slowly they are like they they crash towards earth hmm. as as shooting stars uh and so we were reading and it's kind of dramatic and sad uh and my friends and i we were reading this out loud and it's the minute after we started reading somebody called in and the way that the phone worked in the radio station is that, you know, it was a blinking light, not a ringing phone. So it wouldn't screw up your show. Uh, but I wasn't going to answer it. We were like in the middle of dramatizing this story. <laughs> and so for the next like whatever, 10, 15 minutes, the phone is blinking, strobing this strobe light and like really throwing us all off. And then finally I answer it after the story ends and we put on some music and the guy says, how dare you read Bradbury? That guy's a child molester. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my god. What? <laughs> he called it. He made sure that the phone was ringing for that entire 15 minutes to, so that he could tell me that Ray Bradbury was a child molester. Yeah. Which I guess Bradbury I didn't really look into. Is that a thing? Yeah. Should we look into this? Um, I, you know, I'll exercise for the listener, I guess. Yeah. Good. <laughs> well, I, I hope you have... You, I hope that... You're able to sleep tonight, listener, whatever night it is that you're listening to this show. Yeah. Find some comfort in the idea of a space god or a space yeah. natural god. What's the other thing? Not a not a personification of God, but just, you know, space. Yeah. Find your own god. Math. Find your own religion. <laughs> 
<laughs> and retreat <Twizzlers>. into it. <laughs> Say your prayers and good night. Sweet dreams. Yeah. Sweet dreams, Acapateers. Science fiction.